You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Pray with me again, if you would. Father in heaven, would you make Advent 2021 to be when we first became convinced, or maybe freshly became reconvinced, that no one and no thing can satisfy our souls like Jesus, our treasure. Be with us now as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the reasons that we love Christmas is its paradoxes. At Christmas in particular, we see realities come together that our human instincts do not expect to be together. And yet, when we see them come together with surprise and delight, we find that they do indeed fit together. And it makes us happy. It thrills our soul to sing fullness of God in helpless babe. The paradoxes of Christmas expose the weakness and the falseness and the smallness of our human expectations. They remind us that we did not design this world and we don't run this world and we didn't dream up our own plan of redemption. We cannot save ourselves but God can and he does through The divine word made flesh. It's one of the reasons we love Christmas songs, some of them. This great paradox of the high and holy God becoming the lowly baby in Bethlehem. So we sang a few minutes ago, word of the Father, divine word, eternal word, second person of the Trinity, word of the Father, now in flesh. Humanness appearing. And in a few minutes, we get to sing, What Child Is This? It's one of my Christmas favorites. And we'll sing, Hail, Hail, the Word made flesh. And maybe my favorite Christmas lines of all, maybe in the coming weeks, we'll sing, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. And in the second verse, it says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate Trinity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And the reason that the hymn writers mention the paradoxes of Christmas is not because they made them up. They found them in Scripture. They found them in the words of the angel in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the long-awaited Christ. Christ the Lord, God's own title. Christ the Lord. Beautiful paradox that the whole gospel of Luke will unfold for us. Or the apostle Paul in Colossians 2, 9 says... 
in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Word became flesh. God became man. I love this great Christmas paradox and all its accompanying paradoxes that we enjoy at Christmas. For just a little taste, let me read a quote by the great Augustine. Capturing these paradoxes of Christmas. He says, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the capital B bread might hunger, that the capital F fountain might thirst, that the capital L light might sleep, that the capital W way be tired on his journey, that the capital T truth might be accused by false witnesses, that the capital T teacher might be beaten with whips, that the capital F foundation be suspended on wood, that the capital S strength might grow weak, that the capital H healer might be wounded, that the capital L life might die. The paradoxes of God become man, the paradoxes of Christmas. The late J.I. Packer, whom Jonathan mentioned last Sunday, said this about Christmas. The Almighty God appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other human child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And he says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Nothing in fiction as fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. So two weeks ago, we began this Advent series by considering Jesus our Lord. He's fully God. He's the towering, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God of Isaiah 45. As God, He formed and made all things. And every knee and every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Yahweh, which is God's sacred name revealed in Exodus, as we've seen. Jesus is our Creator our sustainer, the supreme Lord of heaven and earth, almighty in power, infinite in majesty, our Lord and our God. And then last Sunday, we turned to Jesus, our Savior. Without ceasing to be God, He took our fully human flesh and blood, human body and reasoning, human soul, with human mind and emotions and will, and with all our lowliness and ordinariness, like his ordinary first century name, Yeshua, Joshua, four other kids in his class probably had the same name. <laughs> in the incarnation, Jesus added 
to his eternal divine person a full and complete human nature and came among us as one of us to save us, Jesus our Savior. And this morning, we consider Jesus our treasure. And to do so, we will linger in the Christmas paradox of Revelation chapter 5, which Mike just read. But before, but before we do that, I don't want us to miss, it, miss the Advent-like moment in Revelation 5 that sets up the spectacular reality of Jesus as our treasure. So, kids, question for the kids. What season are we celebrating? Advent. That's right. Advent. What is Advent? Advent's a season before Christmas. What kind of season is Advent? Advent's a season of waiting. Where are we waiting? We're waiting in a land of deep darkness. What are we waiting for? For the light to shine on us. Advent is a season of waiting, of anticipating, of aching, of longing, of minor keys. Like, let all mortal flesh keep silent. And, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's like the theme song of Advent. And in verse 1 of Revelation 5, the Apostle John looks and he sees in the hand of God, the one seated on the throne, he sees a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. These are the purposes of God in history. These are the judgments of God against his enemies and salvation for his people, which will unfold in Revelation chapter 6 through, verse, through chapter 22. The rest of the book of Revelation will be the unfolding, the revealing of this scroll and all its purposes written on front and back. Some speculate that this might be the scroll of Daniel chapter 12, where God said to Daniel to seal up the words, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end has come. And John, the Apostle John, who is there in this vision, wants to know what's in the scroll. Don't we all? He wants to know what God has to say. And he hears a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? At this point... Because we know the answer in verse 5, it can be all too easy to just run through verses 3 and 4 and not feel the weight of this moment in heaven. This is what we do during Advent. We feel the weight of waiting. Instead of racing ahead to Christmas, we prepare our hearts to feel some of the ache, some of the longing that God's people felt for centuries as they waited for the Messiah. And in doing so, Advent helps us to see and enjoy Jesus as the treasure that he is. And so the angel asks, who's worthy to open the book? And verse 3 says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
No one in heaven. Mark that. None of the four great creatures around the throne praising God. None of the elders in heaven who are leading the angels in worship. None of the angels. None in the great heavenly host. Not Gabriel. Not Michael. And not even the one sitting on the throne opens the scroll. Not the Father. Not the Spirit. And so heaven waits. I wonder, in John's vision, how long did they wait? Israel waited for centuries. And if no one in heaven, then no one on earth and none under the earth. Kings of heaven, beware. Past, present, future. None is worthy to open God's scroll. Mere humans like us are not worthy to open the scroll of God's purposes in history. Satan, be warned. Demons, Beware, with whatever power you wield for now, you are not able to open the scroll. And so heaven waits. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so John begins to weep. He wants to know what's in the scroll and who's worthy. And not just weep, it says he weeps loudly. Perhaps John even wonders. John has given his life for Jesus. He was discipled by Jesus. He's in exile on the, on the island of Patmos for the witness of Jesus. And perhaps he wonders, what about Jesus? Is he worthy? And heaven waits in Advent. Verse 4 says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And John doesn't tell us how long he wept. But it must not have been too long. It says he began to weep. He was going to weep a lot longer, but he began to weep. And mercifully, the announcement came soon. I just, I love the announcement in verse 5. One of the elders of heaven, one of the leaders in heavenly worship, turns to John and says, imagine John starting to weep, this great silence and waiting, who can open the scroll? And he turns to John and says, Weep no more. Behold. This this is the Christmas moment. This is where Advent moves into Christmas at behold. Behold is a Christmas word. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Behold, 
the star came to rest over the place where the child was. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. And so in Revelation 5, the elder says, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seals. And so now, through the lens of verses 5 and 6, let's look at three aspects of our Advent longing being fulfilled in Jesus, our treasure. Three aspects of our Advent longings fulfilled in Jesus as our treasure. Number one, we long for majesty and might. We long for majesty and might. We long to see and admire and benefit from greatness. And the elder says in verse 5, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Lion of Judah signifies that this is the long-promised king of Israel. This is the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 49, the patriarch Jacob is nearing his death. And he prophesies over each of his twelve sons. And he says to Judah, Judah was the fourth in order, not the oldest, the fourth in order. He prophesies to Judah that his tribe would be heir to the throne. The kingly line in the nation of Israel would come from Judah. Genesis 49, 8 to 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. Lion of Judah. The scepter, the king's ruling scepter, the kingship, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah, the lion of Judah, is the coming Messiah that the nation expects. Like a lion, Judah's offspring will rule. Lion-like, he will be king with majesty and with might. And I can't help but just say here, a little parenthesis. Do you know why Judah, who was born fourth, is appointed to have the kingship? Not because he ruled with a heavy hand. Judah becomes the priestly line because at the critical moment with Benjamin in prison in Egypt, Judah is the one who steps forward to sacrifice himself that Benjamin might go free. That will be the kingship in Judah. A king who will sacrifice himself, not use his kingship over others to get what he wants. The king who will sacrifice himself for the good of his people. So that Benjamin might be released. That will be the king. Root of David is very similar. Prophesied centuries later. This is Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. And we often read Isaiah 11 prophecies during Advent. It's a great fit in Advent. 
Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Jesus is shown in verse 5 to be majestic and mighty. He is king, ruler, judge. He is sovereign. He fulfills our longings for greatness, for a ruler who is strong and mighty, who can impress us and win our trust and protect us and provide for us and give and preserve life. We all want. But we not only long for a great human king, We long for God Himself. And as we saw two weeks ago, the Lion of Judah is not only the human Messiah. He is also God Himself, the God of Isaiah 45. Blaise Pascal, maybe you learned his name in math or geometry. He was a philosopher, 17th century. He spoke spoke famously of the infinite abyss in the human heart that we try to satisfy with all the wonders and all the worst that the world has to offer. But that ache in us, that restlessness in the human soul is an infinite abyss, he says, that can only be filled by the infinite God himself. No mere human king, great as he might be, can fill the infinite abyss. Only God himself. As Augustine said famously, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Have you found your soul's rest in God? In God's eternal divine excellencies. Are you still searching? Have you found the place, or better, have you found the person in which your soul and all, in all the ups and downs of life will be satisfied forever? Or maybe you found him at one time and the cares of this world has drowned it out and you need the reminder of the only place where your infinite abyss of soul can be satisfied. Behold the Lion of Judah. God wired our souls for Him. Try as you might, you will not be enduringly happy and deeply happy without Him. So we long for majesty and might, and behold, we're presented with the Lion of Judah. Number two, we long for meekness and nearness might surprise you. We long for meekness and nearness. Look at verse 6. And here John has just heard the announcement in verse 5 about the worthiness of the lion. And John, he turns to see. He wants to see the lion. He turns to see. And what does he see? Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So, verse 5, the elder says, lion. Verse 6, he turns and sees, lamb. And this is no disappointment for John. This is not a loss. This is a gain 
This is an addition. None of his lionness was taken away as he appears as a lamb. He is fully lion. And now also, as an addition, he is seen as a lamb who was slain. The lion became lamb without ceasing to be lion, to give himself to the slaughter that he might rescue his people. His lambness doesn't take away from his lionness. It adds to it. So important. He adds to it at Advent. He is not only majestic and mighty. He is meek and near and lowly among us as one of us. We not only want to see greatness from afar, we want to know greatness intimately. We want to know greatness in a friend, in a companion, in a brother that we have access to who shares in our circumstances. We want a brother, a friend at our side. And Jesus as Lamb is Emmanuel, God with us, with us to be one of us, with us to sacrifice himself for us, with us to shed his own blood that we might be forgiven, with us as a friend. God designed our souls not only for greatness, but also for nearness and meekness. And you might ask, this would be an astute question, you might ask, if Jesus is already God and has been from eternity, what does his humanity have to add to him as our treasure? You can't add to God with all his divine excellencies. You can't add to divine excellencies. His divine excellencies are indeed infinite. And yet, we are human. We can't get outside of our humanity to see them. We can't see them as God sees them. We are human. And he became man. In his becoming man, he exposes to us glories we otherwise would not see. This is why we love the paradoxes of Christmas. Fullness of God in helpless babe. The paradoxes don't take away from his glory. They add to the glory for human eyes. In 1734, almost 300 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon, now famous, called The Excellency of Christ. I would commend it to you. It's about 15,000 words, which means it's five times longer than the sermons that we preach at City's Church. <laughs> so you may not do it all in one setting, okay? For modern people with modern attention spans, break it up into chunks. It, it is readable, it's accessible if you read slowly. And in that sermon, Edwards addresses this question. Is there any, does the humanity of Christ add anything to God? God's infinite. And this is what he says. Christ has no more excellency in his person, in his divine person, since the incarnation than he had before. It was infinite. For divine excellency is infinite and cannot be added to. Yet, 
His human excellencies are additional manifestations of His glory and excellency to us. And our additional recommendations of Him to our esteem and our love. In other words, to be our treasure. The glory of Christ in His human nature appears to us in excellencies that are of our own humankind and are exercised in our own way and manner and so in some respects are peculiarly fitted to invite our acquaintance as friends, and draw our affection, and I would add, as our great treasure. So the lion, in becoming lamb, the eternal son, in becoming man, while not enhancing his divine glory and worth, became even more a treasure to us who long for meekness and nearness for companions and friends. Finally, number three. So we've seen that we long for majesty and might and for meekness and nearness. And finally, in Jesus, we have it all in one person. In one single person. It is one thing to see and enjoy divine excellencies and glory with unmatched strength and knowledge. And it is another thing to see and enjoy the human excellencies of humility and meekness and friendship. And then, greatest of all, is to see and enjoy human and divine excellencies in one person. Because when majesty and meekness come together in one person, they accent each other. They show us more than we would see otherwise. The way Edward said it in that sermon is, they set off and recommend each other to us by being in one person. So look at verse 6 again. John says that he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns And with seven eyes. So the lamb is not dead. And he's not slumped on the floor. He's not kneeling. He is standing. Alive and ready. And he has seven horns. In the imagery of the book of Revelation. Seven is a number of fullness. And horns are for power. So this lamb standing as though slain has fullness of power with his seven horns and seven eyes, which means he sees all and is sovereign over all. That he is a lamb makes his lion-like work here in Revelation 5 and the rest of the book all the more glorious. It is no accident. That here John introduces the name Lamb for Jesus. And the rest of the book of Revelation will be magnificent displays of his lion-like power. This is a grace to the church. So as he unfolds these horrible judgments 
and great salvation for his people. He's going to say again and again, the lamb, the lamb, your lamb who gave himself for you. The lamb is doing this. It's the lamb who conquered to open the scroll and its seals. The lowly lamb ransoms people from every tribe. Global power of this lowly lamb. The humble lamb is declared worthy by the praise of heaven to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The four living creatures, who must have been spectacular to see, and the elders of heaven fall down and worship in heaven before the Lamb. Unbelievers will tremble before the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6, verse 16. The robes of the saints will be made white in the blood of the Lamb with His power to forgive. Chapter 7, verse 14. And His blood will conquer the accuser of the brothers. Chapter 12, verse 11. And with this lowly Lamb, we're told, are 144,000 strong who follow Him wherever He goes. The Lamb conquers those who make war on Him in Revelation 17, 14. And the Lamb, in all His meekness and lowliness, is not only with the one on the throne in chapter 7, but He is in the midst of the throne in Revelation chapter 22. And of course, we not only admire the Lamb, for his lion-like strength and power. But also the lion. For his lamb-like gentleness and lowliness and provision. That he gives his own neck for our rescue. A bruised reed. The lion will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He is gentle and lowly. In Revelation chapter 1, there's a a glimpse right at the very beginning of Revelation in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 1 that Jesus is not only the lion-like ruler of the kings of the earth. That's verse 4. He is ruler of the kings of the earth. The lion. And the next thing John says is lamb-like. Him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. We admire the greatness of Jesus all the more. Because of his nearness to us as one of us. And we enjoy his nearness all the more because of his greatness. Because he is the lamb and has drawn near to us to save us we can enjoy His lion-like majesty and holiness without shaking in terror. And because He's the lion and He wields the very power of God Almighty, we can enjoy His lamb-like humility and meekness and obedience as man to His Father without worrying that He's powerless to help His friends. Which means God designed our souls For Jesus. Not just a divine father. Not just a human friend. But God himself in human flesh. 
God himself, in the person of his son, becoming one of us, with us, as fully God and fully man in one spectacular person named Yeshua. And so we don't only marvel at his divine, eternal excellencies that fulfill the infinite abyss in us, but also his human excellencies that add to, for our human eyes, add to his glory for our joy, and finally his divine and human excellencies accent each other, set off and recommend each other to us. And so he's not only our Lord and not only our Savior, he is our treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is the one of surpassing value, worth counting all to be lost to have. He is the treasure hidden in a field worth selling all you have to have him. Eternal life is to know him, not only to know the one true God, but Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's the way Jesus prays in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You were not only made for God. You were made for the God-man, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us and rose again to be our living and knowable and enjoyable king which brings us to the table critical to Jesus being our treasure is that he not only lived among us to be human be near make a cameo as a human show us that it could be done but that he died for us. That's another paradox of Christmas. That Jesus was born to die. He came lamb-like to lay down his own life. And he is a treasure not only because he is human and God, but because when he came, how he saved us. We see in the saving of Christ all the more reason to count him as our treasure. And so as we pass the elements here, we're going to sing, what child is this? I know sometimes the question may be, well, that second verse, what child is this? We're going to sing, nails spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And Sometimes people have asked, we just leave that nail spear at Easter? Like, this is, this is Christmas, all is merry and bright, or is it? And this is in the sweet baby Jesus in the manger. Can, can we keep baby Jesus kind of hermetically sealed off from nail and spear piercing him through? And let me just commend to you, as we sing What Child Is This, which is a quintessential Advent him, and I love it. Let your joy, let Jesus as your treasure be enhanced. That he came not only as God and man, but that he came to save us. He came to give his own self 
lamb-like for us at the cross. So this is a meal for the members of City Church, but if you're here with us this morning and you would receive him as your treasure, then we'd invite you to eat with us and take as the elements come. The pastors will come now and distribute, will retain and eat together. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.